For the last few weeks, we have been celebrating New Reads November here on SSR. The last four episodes have been all about YA titles published in 2020. It's been so much fun. If you aren't caught up on New Reads November episodes, you should totally go check them out. But listeners, it's December now, and we are going back to our roots. Consider this an official declaration that we are back to our usual conversations about literary throwbacks. I am so excited to switch back into throwback mode with a chat about George Selden's Newbery Honor winning book, The Cricket in Times Square. The book was published in 1960 and tells the story of a cricket named Chester who finds himself transported via picnic basket from his home in rural Connecticut to the Times Square subway station in New York City. There, he's adopted by the Bellini family who run a newsstand in the station. Mario Bellini is desperate for a pet and he makes a home for Chester first in a matchbox and then in a pagoda-shaped cage that he gets from a friend in Chinatown. Late at night when the Bellinis go home, Chester bonds with the other animal inhabitants of the subway station, Tucker the mouse and Harry the cat. Together, the three get into their share of antics and ultimately build Chester into something of a musical celebrity. It's all very cute and very sweet. On episode 123, my guest and I talk about the cricket in Times Square as a love letter to New York City, an entry point for kids to the so-called American dream, and an ode to friendship. We discuss how it celebrates the arts and shows young readers the potential power of a single small voice. We also talk about liverwurst sandwiches, the presidential fitness test, and my very specific, very hilarious connection to this story and its main character. My guest today is Melissa Dela Cruz. Melissa is the number one New York Times, number one Publishers Weekly, and number one indie-bound best-selling author of many critically acclaimed and award-winning novels for readers of all ages. Her more than 30 books have also topped the USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Los Angeles Times bestseller lists and have been published in over 20 countries. You may know Melissa from books like The Isle of the Lost, The Blue Blood series, The Witches of East End, as well as her more recent titles, including Alex and Eliza and Joe and Laurie. Her newest book, Never After, The Thirteenth Fairy, is the first in a series and is out today. You can follow Melissa on Instagram at author Melissa Dela Cruz and on Twitter at Melissa Dela Cruz. Thanks so much to Melissa for joining me for this cozy walk down reading memory lane. If you're not already, I would love to invite you to follow me on social media, where I share plenty of cozy walks down reading memory lane, along with sneak peeks behind the scenes of the podcast, updates about the adult books I'm reading, photos of my dog, and more. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Search for The SSR Podcast community on Facebook, too. It's a smaller, more interactive group where I share previews of upcoming episodes so you can read along with the show. I would love to chat with you over there. Thanksgiving was last week here in the U.S., and even in the midst of the chaos that is 2020, I am grateful for each and every one of you in the SSR community. Over the past two and a half years, you have helped me bring this passion project to life. I'm thankful for that every single day. If you are thankful for the show, please let me know with a five-star rating or review on iTunes. This is a great place to share feedback about the episodes you've loved and the things you'd like to hear even more of on the show. These ratings and reviews also help podcatchers like iTunes and Spotify find new people to recommend SSR to. It's all about making our podcast family bigger and more inclusive. I'm sending a thank you and a big virtual hug to everyone who has already left a rating or review for the show. Thank yous and virtual hugs also go out to everyone rocking SSR swag. Did you know you can purchase SSR stickers, bookmarks, t-shirts, and tote bags? Well, you can. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com shop to check it out. Your purchases support the show. 
And of course, you can support the show by joining the SSR Patreon family. Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with the fans of the content they create, like you. For just a few dollars every month, actually as little as $1 per month, you can play an active role in keeping the show going strong, and you can get some cool rewards in return. Monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, tote bags, and weekly voice notes are all up for grabs. Go to www.patreon.com SSRpodcast or visit www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for all the details. Thanks to all of the Patreon supporters tuning in to episode 123. With the holiday season approaching, it's a great time to support small businesses whenever you can. And if, like me, you are spending a lot of time hunkering down at home, you are probably looking for ways to entertain yourself. Enter audiobooks and Libro FM, which gives you the opportunity to support small businesses when you buy them. That's right, you can show your love for independent bookstores when you shop for audiobooks instead of supporting giant corporations. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from big corporations, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. This December, you might also consider buying a gift membership for the book lovers in your life. There's more information about that at the link in my bio over on Instagram. Or you can get all the details on the Libro FM site. I'm listening to Barack Obama's A Promised Land on Libro FM right now, and I am so into it. Highly recommend. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to SSR. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. After a month of talking about new YA listeners, we are back on our throwback book game. And I personally could not think of a better book to bring us back to our usual programming with than George Selden's The Cricket in Times Square. I personally have some hilarious anecdotes about this book from when I was growing up, but Melissa, I'm going to throw it over to you. Why did you choose this book for this recording? Do you remember reading it when you were growing up? Do you have any sort of a personal history with it? Yeah, it was one of my favorite books growing up, and I was happy to see it on the list of books that... uh uh, we could discuss. I do remember reading it maybe when I was nine, you know, around nine to 11. I was a big, you know, kind of these chapter book readers. I think it was like an Apple paperback, I'm sure, mm-hmm. with this really lovely cover. And my family, I grew up in Manila in the Philippines, but we had traveled to America a couple of times for vacation. So I think when I read it, I had already been to New York. And that's why I think I was drawn to it because, you know, we had stayed in the city and it's funny because my mom always said, 
when you guys were little, you guys always complained about being in New York because you had to walk all the time. Because I think I was seven and my sister was five. And it just seemed like this big, you know, kind of scary, you know, exhausting city when you're a little kid, but also very exciting. And when I read the book, you know, I knew I'd been to Times Square. It was about the subway, about this kid who works in the newspaper shop, you know, and his friends and it was just just this cozy kind of beautiful book about New York you know and I ended up moving to America and uh, living in New York uh, later on and I think that was one of the first books where this love for that city was you know kind of sparked and kind of shared. I love that story this is such a New York novel and I think I underestimated the extent to which New York it's it's really its own character in the book I don't know why I underestimate it, considering the title is The Cricket in Times Square. But for some reason, I don't think I was prepared for it to be such this like iconic New York story. My personal history with The Cricket in Times Square is that, and Melissa, you might not believe this. You might laugh at me. I don't know. <laughs> but when I was, I'm going to say maybe eight or nine, I had a hamster that I named Chester Cricket. <laughs> that's awesome so I must have loved the book I don't really remember that much about or I didn't really remember that much about the book itself because so many of my memories of book Chester Cricket must have been eclipsed by memories of hamster Chester Cricket <laughs> but I can only assume that because I named my hamster Chester Cricket I must have had quite the affinity for this book so I have been waiting for a long time to be able to share that story in a conversation about this book. And I'm so glad it's finally out there, listeners. I'll be anxious to hear what you think about my choice of hamster name. I really wanted that hamster. Like I really wanted that hamster so badly. And my mom was not into it. Much like Mario's mom in this book is not especially excited for her son to have a cricket as a pet. <laughs> I don't think any moms are ever excited about any pets because moms know that we're going to be the ones taking care of them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. I, uh, now that I am an adult who has the full adult responsibility of taking care of a pet, I understand it. But enough about me, enough about my pets, enough about my hamster. In reading the book as an adult, I really understood why the kid version of me would have loved the book so much that I would have used Chester Cricket as a name for my first pet. I, too ultimately moved to New York City when I was just out of college. And I was always very enamored with the city. I grew up getting to visit quite a bit, but I just, I always thought it was this romantic place. And I, I think that books like this really helped inform this dream that I had for myself to go to New York and make my own life there. And even the way that George Seldon, the author, depicts the subway, which is arguably like the least romantic, least sexy part of New York, like a beautiful, like you said, a cozy place, which I think that's hard to do, especially if you've ridden the subway, not recently, because nobody's on the subway right now. But anybody who's who's ridden the New York subway, I think would have a hard time believing that a book all about the subway system could feel so cozy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So what were your first impressions as you were getting back into the world of the cricket in Times Square? We are in the Times Square subway station. We are with Mario and his family. They own a newsstand in the subway. We're starting to meet these little animals that populate the world. What were your thoughts? I was remembered that I really liked the book because Chester 
uh, you know, they asked the cricket how he ended up uh, in New York because he's a country cricket. He's from Connecticut. Uh, I always thought was so cute. And, you know, Chester is a gentleman. He's, you know, refined, but he's from the country, you know, and the big city kind of scares him. But I love that Chester says that the way he ended up in New York is that he was drawn to liverwurst sandwiches. And I think now, you know, it's not something that people eat as much or is it common, but I grew up eating liverwurst sandwiches in the Philippines because my dad had gone to school in England. And so he kind of brought back uh, a little bit of these British habits and appetites. And I was just like, oh yeah, I would totally get in that picnic basket too if there was a liverwurst. <laughs> sandwich in there it was just like this great detail i just really um related to chester and his love for that sandwich and then how he's trapped in the picnic basket because this roast beef is put on top of him so i thought that was really um really funny yeah my grandmother used to give me liverwurst sandwiches when go. i went to her house and i loved them i mean i don't think i've had liverwurst since i was probably seven years old but there's all of this like family folklore about how I would just talk about how I wanted pink meat, give me pink meat. And I loved liverwurst sandwiches. And it was such a blast from the past, as you said, to, to find mention of liverwurst in this book. I mean, it plays a pretty substantial role in Chester's story. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's kind of sad, you know, like when you said you haven't eaten it since you were seven, I don't think I've eaten it since we moved from the Philippines, which was 30 five or so years ago and yeah it's you know kind of these things that kind of go out of fashion but it did add to my love for that book you know it's such a specific taste <laughs> it's such a specific sandwich yeah so rereading that book you know really brought me back to my childhood to my memories it, it was amazing to see how kind of sophisticated it was you know because one of the first things that chester discovers is that the mouse and a cat are friends he was expecting Harry to, you know, pounce on the mouse. And, uh, and I just thought it was so funny when they're like, Oh, yeah, we don't do that here. We're New Yorkers. We're over that. You know, yeah. cool. <laughs> like, we don't do that here. <laughs> yeah, it was so real. And so New York, like, of course, even the animals that live in the subway station in New York City in 1960 have an attitude. I lived in New York for eight years, so I think it's okay if I say that, that New Yorkers have an attitude. Um, and even the mouse and the cat have attitudes. I, I need to talk about how much I loved these creatures. Tucker the mouse <laughs> literally made me laugh out loud at least a dozen times while I was reading this book. He was an amazing character. Oh yeah, it's all about Tucker. And just the way, you know, the, the humor and the friendship, you know, it was just very real, you know, just the way that they all related to each other, how they met and how, you know, kind of wonderful and cool, you know, like Chester's like this artist, he's a musician, like how much they appreciated that in him. I thought that was so great, you know, that you would find these people, these friends who would see, you know, how special you were. I thought that was really, you know, I mean, I could just see why I love this book. It was just a wonderful depiction of life, of friendship. Yeah, and it's funny because you say you'll find these people and these animals refer to each other as people, which was one of my favorite things about this book when they were describing each other or talking to each other about other animals or about one of the three of them. It was like this kind of a person or that kind of a person. I thought it was so funny. Oh, yeah. No, it's just so great. 
You know, they're just really cosmopolitan kids. And you know what's so interesting, though, is I did not know that there were sequels. There were six. Could you believe that? Yeah. And I did not know that as a kid. Like, I, I don't know if they were not published until I was an adult or what. But I just remember reading the book and thinking that was it. That was just one book. And then you go on Amazon and there's like seven books. And I was like, what? Why did I not know that? Yeah, he got a lot of mileage out of this. And what's interesting is because I I also didn't know about these other books. I maybe could have anticipated like one sequel. But when I was researching to chat with you today, I discovered that there are six other books that George Selden wrote in this world. So The Cricket in Times Square was published in 1960. He spent many years on this. So the second book, Tucker's Countryside, came out in 1969. The third book, 1974. Then 1981, 1983, 1986, and the final book was written in 1987, so nearly 30 years after he wrote The Cricket in Times Square. And I thought that was really interesting that he took so long between each book. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. Being an author, like to me, it seems like he this was like a luxury that he had to sort of like take his sweet time writing each one of these books. I don't know that that would happen for a series author today. Yeah, I don't think he probably thought of himself as a series author. I I bet he worked on other books in between. I don't know his biography or what he did, you know, but publishing in the 60s in children's literature was probably a lot different from how it is now, you know. So I'm sure he worked on other projects and I thought, oh, you know, that book's doing well. His publisher probably asked him, oh, do you have a idea for a sequel because the ending of um a cricket in times square is just so kind of like sad and beautiful but hopeful you know they are they're playing to visit their friend they're so sad that their friend has gone back to the country but they're like you know harry says oh maybe we'll go to the country and tucker's like yeah and he's like you know i mean connecticut he's like yeah i know what you meant (laughs) (laughs) visit him in connecticut you know it's just such this perfect ending so i'm sure you know there was not this like plan for the sequel until much later you know when probably some commercial demand and maybe he had an idea for the next story certainly seems like a much less stressful (laughs) publishing schedule (laughs) than we have today yes it seems that way to me and then in addition to the seven books that george selden wrote in 2011 mcmillan released three Harry Cat and Tucker Mouse books authored by a different author, but based on these characters. So they've sort of had a second life, even within the last decade or so, which I thought was interesting. And all of this came from a very simple premise. I found a quote from the author. He says, one night I was coming home on the subway and I did hear a cricket chirp in Times Square. The story formed in my mind within minutes. An author is very thankful for minutes like those, although they happen all too infrequently. Absolutely. You know, it is funny because sometimes, you know, ideas just really come, you know, just feels like they come from the sky. They kind of hit you in a lightning bolt. And uh, when that happens, you know, you do know you have something special. You know, there's different kinds of ideas, things that you work on for many years and finally it kind of gels and you kind of figure out what the story is. And then some where you're just completely inspired and one kind of blazing, you know, moment of glory or hearing a cricket. And, um, you know, then you kind of, you're off to the races. So yeah, you know, I'm sure he, that minute when he heard that cricket and then it all kind of clicked, you know, the newspaper stand, because it's all things that you see in the subway, the newspaper stand, you know, and of course there's a mouse and a cat. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. You know, he knew how special it was. 
Have you ever been hit with an idea for a book in that kind of like a quick moment? Yeah. Um, you know, it definitely happens. And when it does, you know, you're very grateful for it. Um, it just feels like everything is kind of lighting up in your brain and you've kind of grabbed this kind of amazing thing from the ether. My Blue Bloods vampire series, you know, when I had the idea for that, I almost kind of stood up. I was like so excited. I was like, oh, I think I can. I've got it. You know, you, it's almost this eureka moment. You know, not all books come like that. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that, you know, the ones that are, you know, kind of uh, lightning bolt are always the ones that uh, do well, although it kind of seems like that a little bit. But I've had books where I thought about it for a long time, you know, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what the story is. And you know, they do just as well. So I think both are good. You know, uh, writers always say, or some authors always say, you know, you don't wait for the muse. You kind of sit at your, you know, writing table in front of your computer and you work. And I'm definitely think that, you know, when you're a professional writer, that's what you have to do. And sometimes it's just really heavy sledding and it's like pulling teeth. And sometimes it's so easy and it's just flowing and it's, so fun and you'd never do anything else and i think the writers that kind of end up doing this for the rest of their lives are the people who have figured out how to get to that flow really you know quickly and regularly because if it's going to be a pain and it's going to be something that you're always you know whining and having and writers are huge whiners you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know i mean in a way it's the easiest job in the world i mean i walked into my office this morning and I was like, oh, off to the salt mines. And <laughs> beautiful office with all my books and, you know, and just all the notes for all the books. And I thought, you know, what, you know, what am I saying? This is just so funny the way, you know, we treat it like this torture. And it's not. It's, uh, you know, certainly the reason why I've been writing for uh, more than 25 years is because, I really enjoy it. It entertains me. I amuse myself. I have fun. I'm always, you know, as my husband says, when you're cackling, I know it's going well, you know, and I'm kind of just like, <laughs> I love that. You know, that I, I'm just, you know, just really just entertaining myself with my imagination. And I'm so grateful I get to do that. But I'm also just really proud of myself. And I think that, you know, a lot of authors, especially female authors, you know, we kind of, kind of have to assume this kind of humble, grateful pose and, you know, make no mistake, I'm grateful, but there's very few people who can do this stuff as Rick Riordan says, you know, it seems so easy. Everybody says, oh, they have a book idea. They've got, you know, it's like, all right, well, let, let's see. Right. <laughs> Show us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And very few people just happen to hear a cricket while they're on the subway and say, ha, ha, there are my seven books and my Newbery Honor winner. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's how it all started. And the vast majority of this book takes place in the newsstand, which is a really interesting setting um, and is like surprisingly rife with fun things to do, especially for these three animals that take center stage. And it's a short book. It's only about 130 pages and there are a lot of illustrations. So it goes by very quickly, especially if you are an adult as we are. But there are a few key moments that I wanted to chat about in the newsstand. 
And again, like, you know, I have to talk about Tucker the mouse. So I'm like (laughs) focusing on moments where he plays a role. So I would say the first kind of conflict feels like a strong word. There are very few moments in this book that actually feel like heavy with conflict. It's not especially high stakes. But uh, the first sort of issue that Chester comes across when he is accepted by the Bellini family and Mama gives her like begrudging permission to let Mario keep Chester as a pet is he has a dream where he's eating a leaf and he wakes up to find that he's eaten a $2 bill. <laughs> which, first of all, like TBT, $2 bills. Um, <laughs> haven't heard of one of those in a while. But he really gets so sad. There's this moment where he was like, oh, things were going so well. And he's so afraid of what's going to happen when the family comes. Because it's very clear that this family is struggling financially. Harry says early on, like, you should have picked better friends. I think this newsstand isn't doing so hot. And so there's this, like, ever-present financial stress for the Bellinis. Chester's just, like, really worried about what's going to happen when they when they come in and they see that the cash is missing. This is a lot to this family. And I just love how the cat and the mouse, who again are usually like enemies, but in this book are friends, they show up to help and to try to make it so that Chester can stay because Mama Bellini wants to kick him out. She's like, I'm over this. He's ruining everything. But we find out that Tucker, again, my fave character, has been saving money (laughs) He's been like collecting coins in the subway station for years. And so he has a life savings, which was, it was just so cute. Oh, it's just adorable. And, you know, it's just, you know, everybody should have a friend like Tucker, right? Mm -hmm. He's done something accidental, but kind of horrible, (laughs) you know, to this family who makes $2 a day. You've eaten their $2. So you're just you know, terrified that you're going to be thrown out and, you know, it's all, it's all over for you. And then here comes your friend who has, you know, what you need. I mean, I think that is, you know, one of the moments where, you know, it is just, you're just so relieved that Tucker (laughs) has those life savings. Of course, Tucker has life savings, you know? Yeah. Harry says that he's known throughout the city as old money bags mouse, which like, (laughs) love the idea of this, like, New York Mouse Network having nicknames for especially prominent mice. Um, And then at one point, Chester's like, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it because Mario has committed to making the money back so that Chester will be allowed out of the cage because mama is like, okay, he can stay, but he is not allowed out of his cage until you find a way to get me the money back. So Mario, such a sweet child, is like, okay, I'm going to give up my playtime to go do these odd jobs to make money so that Chester can be out of his cage again. And so Chester's like, Tucker, don't worry about it. Mario will take care of it. And of course, like Tucker's going to do a good thing, but he's not going to do it without a, a heavy dose of New York attitude. He says, listen to the cricket acting noble and making me look like a bum. Of course, I'll give the money wherever mice are spoken of. Never let it be said that Tucker Mouse was stingy with his worldly goods. Besides, I could think of it as rent I pay for sleeping in the cage. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, we've all been there. And I think it's just such a, it's such a great thing. I mean, it's why this is a perennial favorite. It's a classic book. I mean, I remember when my nephew was reading it in elementary school is one of the 
required reading. I said, oh, my God, a cricket in Times Square. Mm -hmm. And my daughter read it a couple of years later. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a beloved classic for all of these, you know, reasons. And even, you know, the Bellinis, when I was reading it, um, and you'd mentioned that it was published in 1960, I think my mom also read it. So when I read it, she was like, oh, my God, I love this book. And, uh, you know, the Bellinis were immigrants and they were, you know, trying to make a living and they were surviving, you know, through the friendship and support of fellow New Yorkers. And, you know, I mean, 1960 to 2020, it's still the same today. I mean, you know, just uh, immigrants having small businesses, getting by with help from the community. And, you know, when, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was just as uh, just as uh, important then as it is now, you know, this family. I mean, that's why it didn't feel, when I read it, it didn't feel old. It felt, you know, just as vibrant and just as current. And there's a story that my 17-year-old nephew and my 14-year-old daughter, they read it just a couple of years ago that they also related to. Yeah, I think that's really well said. It it didn't feel old to me either. And I actually, in reading some um, reviews from the last few years on blogs, on various like mommy blogs and teaching blogs, one of the themes that came up again and again was how when when we think about this book and when it was written and, and even now, like kids over the last 60 years reading this book for the first time, it often can be an entry point to this idea of like the American story, as you sort of referenced with the Bellinis being an immigrant family, because we have the Bellinis who run this small business. Mama and Papa Bellini are from Italy. And then there are also references to Mario going to Chinatown and finding friends and being resourceful about immigrants from China who had also settled and were building their own vibrant community in New York. And I I think that that's really interesting to think about. One of the bloggers that I was reading a review from talks about how this book inspired a lot of conversations between her and her very curious daughter about the bloggers own ancestors and where they had come from and how they too had gone to New York and what they had done to survive and how they had sort of made the American dream their own. And I thought that that was a really beautiful sentiment and something that I certainly wouldn't have realized when I was reading this as a kid myself, but it's a really helpful and interesting perspective to think about now. Oh yeah, definitely. And just, you know, I was a little bit worried when I reread the book. I was like, oh yeah. No. I forgot that there was Chinese people and you know, I was kind of a little bit concerned about how they would be depicted, you know, yeah. that this book was written so long ago. But it was kind of this like great, kind of beautiful story. And, you know, all the Chinese food in it is just so delicious. I mean they treat the cricket with respect, you know, and uh, there's no robe small enough for the cricket. They were so sorry, you know, and they treated these animals like people. And there, it was just so, I don't know, it was just so wonderful to see that kind of, you know, civil, polite, respectful, you know, attitude. Um, yeah, so I didn't, I really, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I was a little nervous too. Actually, at the top of the chapter that's called Chinatown, I actually, the words, oh no, are written in my book, which I noticed as I was going back through my notes. But it really, I mean, especially again, this was written in 1960 and listeners will know that I've I've read and covered so many books from decades gone by. And often when we're bringing in various cultures and races, it gets very problematic and very dicey. And I agree with you. I think that this was generally 
lovely and fine. There were a few things that I felt were, were like a little reductive about Chinese culture, but it was generally very respectful. And we got a lot of, as you said, commentary about how beautiful Chinese culture is and how kind these Chinese men are to like impart their wisdom on Mario and how they're sort of teaching things to each other and becoming friends. So yeah, I have to say that my fears did not come to fruition, which I was very relieved about because I was having so much fun. And I was like, oh no, please, please don't turn on me now, Cricket in Times Square. I I mean, I'm half Chinese. So yeah, I was a little bit worried. And then I said, oh, this is so great. You know, and it for me, it really um, kind of showed the, the diversity of New York City. You know, that's what I felt when I was reading it, you know, like, of course, of course, they eat Chinese food. They're in New York. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> and of course, a New York kid who's grown up eating Chinese food and around immigrant families would sort of know how to embrace these other cultures without being taken aback by them. A New York author maybe has a little bit more dexterity with like handling this even in 1960 in a way that feels respectful. I was just very relieved. I definitely was like, okay, phew, this, I don't have to dislike this book because of a problematic commentary about the visit to Chinatown. I think there was one comment that Harry the Cat makes about like what he thinks that Chinese people eat that I was like, oh, not so great. But I think that was the only thing that felt icky to me. It was generally pretty good for 1960. Yeah, um, you know, I just, I thought it was, uh, they weren't othered. It wasn't right. as particularly exotic. It, you know, it was like the Bellinis being Italian immigrants. It was kind of written in that same way. And yeah, no, I, there was nothing in it that bothered me. And I was, a, you know, maybe that comment, which would be just, you know, kind of deleted today. But, you know, everything else I thought was great. Yeah. Great. Thanks, George Selden. So the next kind of like big event that happens in the newsstand is Tucker, Harry, and Chester decide that they're going to have a dinner party, <laughs> which is so cute. I believe the dinner party was to celebrate the fact that Chester gets to stay because Tucker gave him his life savings. And they all kind of pool their resources. Harry has some things that he's stored away. Tucker has all of the food that he's stored away. Somehow he's managed to like get a hold of iced soda. There was a very cute comment about like only in New York would a mouse be able to drink ice in his soda, which I thought was so perfect. And Chester is going to provide music because he is a cricket and he can make these beautiful noises. So they're having a lovely time. And then classic Tucker, like trying to be cool, he's dancing around and he knocks over a match and lights the newsstand on fire. <laughs> Oh, Tucker, come on. Um, but of course, Chester is like taking it on himself. The book reads, he felt guilty because even if he hadn't said it, in a way the fire was his fault. If he hadn't invited everyone into the newsstand, it wouldn't have happened. And it was his playing of the rumba that had made Tucker want to dance and so tip over the matches. And he did eat the $2 bill. He began to believe that he really was a jinx because mom is over it. Mom is like, okay, you ate our money. Now you're setting our livelihood on fire. This cricket has got to go, which I can't believe I just made that statement. Like these are the things that I say on my podcast. This cricket has got to go. Here I am. <laughs> and I just, I thought that like the fact that they are again, like having to take responsibility 
for this rather large transgression that they've committed these three like small animals in a newsstand in a large New York City subway station. It just broke my heart that they had to do the problem solving. Although again, they're so resourceful. Chester figures out how to hit the alarm on the alarm clock so that he draws the attention of people in the stations, they can come help put the fire out. And then, of course, Chester wins mama back with music. And I I think that this book really, to me, feels like a love letter to musicians, to creators, to the arts, in a way that I don't think I would have appreciated when I was a kid. But I have one of my sisters is studying to be a music therapist, and she is really passionate about music. She's very talented at, at playing the piano. And I it made me think like, I don't know that she read this book. And I want her to because it really is about like the power of music. And it's like an ode to people who love it. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, and I think that's what I remembered from it was how much it kind of celebrated the arts and that, you know, as kind of like a budding writer, a budding artist, you know, it really kind of deeply affected me that there would be people out there who would appreciate beauty like that. And it was kind of hopeful, you know, we definitely live in a culture where, you know, kind of like athleticism is very much celebrated, especially in elementary school. I kind of had forgotten about that until my kid was that age again. And then it was like, oh, I forgot that sports are such a big deal at that age. And, uh, you know, and among the parent community and among, you know, the kids themselves. So, you know, as a bookish kind of nerdy, you know, nine-year-old reading this book, you know, somebody who was always picked last at dodgeball or any sport, uh, kickball, (laughs) softball, you know. um, Been there, been there. (laughs) Read about this city, this wonderful city where art and music could move people, could be something that was celebrated and appreciated. You know, it just, it was kind of a ticket to, oh, it does get better. It's okay. One day, you know, this gym class is not going to matter. I mean, even when I was in high school, there was the presidential fitness program. And I remember there was a certain thing that you had to do. Either you had to like bounce this ping pong. I don't think they have it anymore. Or, or it's certainly not mandatory as it was back then. But I was just, I could not do it. You know, I could not bounce the stupid ping pong ball. And, you know, I went to the bathroom in tears. And oh. I was so humiliated by my inability to do um, any kind of, you know, physically coordinated athletic sport. And, uh, you know, and when you read a book like this, it's almost like a secret. It's like, hey, you know, I know what's around you. And I, I don't even know if George Selden was thinking of that. He was just writing about what he loved and, you know, what he saw. But, you know, for, I think for kids, you know, it is transportative. And Chester does win mama over with his music, you know, and he is always a gentleman. He's a Connecticut cricket, you know, who can play, <laughs> you know, the violin with his feet. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's just it's such an important book, and I can see why you know um, it's on reading lists and why they want the kids to read it. You know, it's certainly it w- it was something that I always loved about that book. You know, even though I kind of had a vague memory, you know, of it. You know, I just remembered when when I saw that title, I said, "Oh, Cricket in Times Square." Oh yeah, I love that book. 
you know, but I couldn't really remember why. I knew I loved the Beatles of New York and I knew there was like some kind of like fastidious cricket in it, but I'd forgotten about Tucker and Harry, you know, and about, you know, the music. So, yeah. Quick presidential fitness test question because I yeah. don't get to talk about the presidential fitness test nearly enough. Did you have to climb a rope? I don't think we did. Yeah, we did not climb a rope. There was a lot of running though. Okay, yeah, we had a lot of running. So we had to do a rope climb in my elementary school and here's the worst part. So the gym in my elementary school doubled as the cafeteria. It was like an all-purpose room and there was a stage and not only did you have to do a rope climb, but the rope descended from the ceiling on the stage. And so you would have to go and climb the rope on a stage. I cannot emphasize this enough. While your classmates like sat as though they were an audience at a theater production. (laughs) And spoiler alert, everyone, I too was the kid who was always carrying a book or a notebook around. And I could not climb the freaking rope. I just couldn't do it. And to had to have to like prepare in the wings of the stage to go out and just like meet the inevitable fate of not being able to climb the rope was a trauma every single year. It was very embarrassing. And I just wanted to go back and read the Cricket in Times Square and hang out with my hamster, Chester Cricket. And so, yes, I think that it is very important for kids to have access to books like this that really celebrate different kinds of arts and um, have no mention of running or throwing ping pong balls or of climbing ropes. <laughs> I was just, uh, I was reading an interview with Mo Willems, you know, and uh, he was just saying how he's not on the parent's side. He's on the kid's side. Not going to tell parents how to talk to their kids or what to say about things, you know, and you're always trying to, um, oh, and, and this is what he said, which I, which is kind of what we're talking about. He said, you know, you, if you want your kids to grow up like me, to be an artist, you know, you, you know, you got to show them, you know, that it's important. And he said, you know, when you're in elementary school, you know, the kids play basketball and they draw, you know, they do sports and they do the arts. But then as they grow up, you know, they still play basketball, volleyball or soccer or or whatever, but then they stop drawing. Mike, Mm -hmm. me, you know, I, what, what are you doing? I'm drawing. Daddy's drawing. It's, it's important, which, which again is just, you know, just how our culture is like that sports are so integral. And so almost, you know, there's almost this, uh, you know, assumption that, yeah, of course, well, that's important. You know, they have to do athletics, you know, like I have friends in adult basketball leagues, my brother who played basketball in in high school in the varsity team, you know, he's still part of a corporate basketball league. You know, I have friends who are part of, you know, like rugby leagues and, you know, it's still into their adulthood, you know, they're still doing sports. And, you know, my brother used to draw. He was like, a, he loved to draw. He was a big artist. And, you know, does he draw anymore? No. You know, so it's, it's something that, you know, everybody, or at least, you know, the people who don't become artists, you know, you just give it up. But I think if everybody kind of kept at the arts the same way, you know, we might have a little bit more Chester's around. <laughs> yeah. And Chester's affinity for music doesn't just create a situation where mom allows him to stay but it also makes him cool like it's not just like oh he can stay because he's talented everybody thinks that Chester is awesome I mean Tucker wants to be his manager he's basically like okay here's how it is in New York people will pay for your talent and so how do we monetize this (laughs) 
Tucker is a little entrepreneur, which I respect. And so he's like, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to figure out how to channel your talents, get the word out. And conveniently, one of the Bellini's regular customers is Mr. Smedley, who is a music teacher. And he happens to come over one day when Chester is like really just nailing it with the music and he's really impressed he says i want to thank you for the most delightful hour i have ever spent the whole world should know of this cricket he tells mario that chester has absolute pitch and he actually writes a letter to the new york times so that the whole city knows that they need to come to this particular newsstand and listen to this very talented cricket play a concert he writes ah music lovers you will never guess it was a cricket a simple cricket, no longer than half my little finger, which is rather long because I play the piano, but a cricket that is able to chirp operatic, symphonic, and popular music. Am I wrong then in describing such an event as a miracle? I urge, I implore every man, woman, and child who has music in his soul not to miss one of his illustrious, nay, his glorious concerts. <laughs> it's a rave Powerful words. from the times. <laughs> yes, a rave review. And so, of course... <laughs> People are flooding in to listen to Chester, and now they're flooding in to buy music trade publications from the Bellini's newsstand because Mama is also a good entrepreneur. And so she's like, okay, these are the newspapers, these are the magazines that we need to push for the people who are coming to listen to Chester. So it all kind of works together really nicely. Chester's really like honing his craft. He's practicing at night. He's listening to the radio and learning to mimic what he hears. And uh, it's paying off. I think one of the things that we really get from this book is like the power of one small voice, in this case, a very small voice to impact a lot of people, because not only is he helping the Bellinis financially by bringing all of this business to their newsstand, but he's also just making a lot of people happy. Everybody who comes through the subway station is just like floored by his talent. There are literally people just stopped up on the street because they want to hear him from underground. And I just think like this is the power of books written for children of this age is that like this is such like a sweet premise that like this one very small little creature can impact so many people. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's one of the most, uh, I mean, I, I think that's why I remember Chester, you know, because of that singular talent, which was so celebrated. And I love that Tucker was such a New Yorker, you know, such a, such a little business guy. Um, you know, he's an agent. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it was really profound. And I loved, you know, that the Bellinis, you know, also kind of appreciated art and music and they carried these fancy magazines about music that nobody would buy. Right. Um, but, but they, but that they thought was really important, and, you know, things that were of value. Um, and then, like you said, you know, Chester kind of reminds everybody, you know, the power of that and makes people interested in it. You know, it, it's just so amazing how few people even go to the symphony. And my husband and I always went, even when we, we were young. I mean, I went to Columbia and in college, we would we would buy the cheapest tickets to mm -hmm. the opera, which was standing. They were standing. I wouldn't call them seats <laughs> that were twelve dollars. You know, up in several balconies. And then my friend who'd grown up in New York said, "Oh, it's okay. We only have to stand for the first act. You know, after during intermission, we can move down." And so, with our twelve dollar ticket, we would move all the way down to almost a front row seat. And, you know, nobody would even, it was so ex accepted a practice, you know, like you would think that the people who spent, you know, whatever, $500 
on those front row seats would, you know, kind of turn their noses up at these, you know, 18 year old college kids, you know, coming down, you know, excuse me, excuse me, can we sit here? <laughs> but there was such, you know, I almost felt this approval from them that, oh, young kids at the opera, this is great. And again, one of these wonderful, glorious things about New York is that stuff like that happens. Like you can right. spend $12 to go to the opera and then end up sitting in the front row. You know, you just have to stand for like, you know, an hour, <laughs> but you know, it's worth it. And, and I think that's what that book, you know, really captures is that magic of the city, you know, um, a city where people aren't gonna say, Hey, hey, you didn't buy a ticket for this, which, you know, which happens in other cities and in other places, you know, where people are not as kind or not are not as um, approving of people's musical appreciation. And I never felt that in New York. I never felt that we did not belong down there, even though we had spent $12 to see the show. You know, I, I, it was always very welcoming in that way, you know, because there were so few young people there. And at, even as we're getting older, you know, it, it's still very rare to see young people, you know, at the symphony, at, at the opera. And uh, and I encourage everybody to go and take your kids. <laughs> yeah, well, and especially now, I think they're they're making so many of those kinds of performances available virtually because of the stay home order. So that's something to check out for listeners who are interested and maybe inspired by Chester and our conversation <laughs> about Chester. <laughs> With the pressures of fame and the exhaustion of doing two shows a day, it begins to get to Chester. And maybe I'm just projecting my own adult problems and uh, issues onto him. But something that I picked up a lot in, in this reading was um, he has these like people-pleasing tendencies. And he's so torn about whether or not he can leave. He's, he's no longer happy in New York. He can feel autumn coming around the corner. He misses Connecticut. He misses the freedom that he used to have to play music on his own time. And he's really kind of tormented about whether or not he should stay and kind of like continue to give back to the Bellinis and to continue to help them, even though he's unhappy. And um, I was just like, oh man, I know how this feels. Like this people pleasing thing is real and even crickets experience it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, he definitely feels indebted. And so, uh, you know, so, you know, and it's something that we all feel definitely. Um, yeah. I think we're all kind of brought up as people pleasers in a way. Um, and then at some point as artists, you have to decide, you know, how much of yourself, you know, you can give until you're kind of burnt out. And I think that's a balance that you have to discover. And uh, even though it's a kid's book, I think it's also worthy for adults to read it. And I'm glad I reread it you know to remember that you know that it's okay to kind of step back and say I want to go back to the country <laughs> and make I want to go back to my myself. stump and play music when I feel yeah. like it yeah and do it for me and you know remember that there's the joy in it just you know for amusing yourself and entertaining yourself or just for the music's sake and I think that's another uh profound message in the book is doing that uh and and I think we're all kind of glad when Ches when Chester you know, decides to go. I think we feel like that's good for his health. <laughs> yes. And and even Mario is glad. And he ultimately like, it's like, I'm glad that he, that he left. He was unhappy here. And um, a lot of the reviews that I found of this book compare it to Charlotte's Web, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was a very fair comparison. But one of the differences that a lot of the reviewers drew between the two books is that in Charlotte's Web, Fern, the human child, character doesn't actively have to say goodbye 
to any of her animal friends. But in this book, we see Mario having to say goodbye to Chester and having to acknowledge the fact that he's going away and that he's not going to have him close by anymore. And a lot of these like mommy bloggers and book reviewers talked about how they felt like this was like a really nice way for their kids to see goodbyes being depicted and seeing like, okay, it's it's okay to acknowledge that it sucks when you have to say goodbye to somebody that you care about, but also to understand that maybe it's the right thing for them to leave. Yeah, no, definitely. And you know, I, I think as much as we want the kids to learn these things, I mean, they're going to experience them and they're going to deal with them. It's kind of hard, you know, to say like, nobody ever really takes advice. <laughs> as much as we want to guide and teach our kids they really want to find out for themselves you know what what life is really like so i think we try to you know try to give them you know as much guidance so that they make the right choices but ultimately that is their choice to do certain things so we can only hope that we've raised them well enough um sometimes i feel like i was a cricket in Times Square. My parents were very protective, very sheltered. I had a very uh, kind of sheltered childhood. I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things. You know, I wasn't allowed to have sleepovers. I wasn't allowed to, you know, have my friends pick me up, you know, kind of these classic American teenage uh, rituals. My parents who were immigrants were very fearful of because in the Philippines, kids grow up a lot slower. They're not as old as fast. But then they dropped me off at Columbia in the middle of New York City and said, bye. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, years later, I asked my dad, I said, you know, that's so crazy because, you know, you wouldn't even let me go to the mall. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. with my friends. And then suddenly I was here in the middle of the big city able to do whatever I want. And how did you feel about that? And he said, well, I thought I'd raised you right and you'd made the right choices. So I was like, wow, that's like a, you know, you got to really have faith in your kid <laughs> for that, but maybe not. Maybe, uh, you know, you kind of know your kids. Um, but yeah, I do remember feeling a little like Chester when I first came to New York. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, on the whole, Melissa, how does this rereading experience of The Cricket in Times Square compare to the memories that you have of it when you were growing up? Has the book held up? Are there parts of it that disappointed you? I don't think I've read it since I might have, I can't remember if I read it again when my nephew was reading it um, maybe eight years ago. I, I don't think I did. I think I just remember telling him, oh, I really love that book. Yeah. When I read it, I was like, oh, that's why I loved it. I just really, there was nothing that disappointed me. It was just as kind of wonderful as I remembered. And, you know, I think it was kind of striking how well it held up, you know, um, with these characters, with their sense of humor, how sophisticated it was. It's a very gentle story, but it's got kind of a lot of edge to it, you know, and, uh, and I really, um, I really liked it. I liked the message about art. I liked the message about friendship. You know, there was nothing saccharine about it. There was nothing sentimental. There was definitely a lot of love and affection, but it wasn't played for feelings. You know, sometimes I feel like the modern way that kids uh, entertainment is now is so sentimental and saccharine and, you know, these kids are perfect, you know, and they're, and they're not like these characters, you know, I mean, they almost broke down a newsstand. (laughs) Right. They make jokes, you know, they're kind of real um, human beings. So I, I, I really, I like that about it. And, and I think, you know, we should have more of that. Definitely. 
Yeah, I echo all of that. Thank you so much for revisiting the book with me. Other than The Cricket in Times Square, what are you reading or what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA or middle grade. It can just be anything that you're especially loving. I'm reading, I'm rereading. It's funny. I think we're back to the seventies. I'm rereading The Westing Game. I have a book that I'm working on that I can't talk about, which was a little bit inspired by it. And uh, and so I was like, oh, let me reread it. And uh, it's a puzzle. It's a fun kind of mystery. And it was published, I think, in the 70s. Another Newbery Award winner. And yeah, and it also holds up. It's a really fun, fun short book. You know, one of the classics of Kid Lit. Yeah, we did an episode about the Westing game way back early on. So I'll be sure to link to that episode um, for listeners who want to check it out. I will also link to the Cricket in Times Square and to your recommendation, Melissa, the Westing game. And of course, to your brand new book that is literally out on the day that this podcast episode drops. It is the first in a new series. It is called Never After the 13th Fairy. Is there anything that listeners should know about the book? I'm sure that everybody's going to want to go check it out. I know it's a fairy tale kind of retelling. And as a person who still loves all things fairy tale, I am very interested in getting my hands on a copy. Uh, yeah, it is. It was inspired by some research I did uh, when I discovered that the original Grimm's fairy tale Sleeping Beauty doesn't actually end with um, Sleeping Beauty being woken up with the prince's kiss. You know, there's actually an ogre mother-in-law. There's um, bloodshed, the murder of children. You know, Sleeping Beauty's life is a complete tragedy, um, which I was like so shocked and intrigued by because I thought, well, you know, if all these terrible things happen, maybe when she was cursed by the evil fairy, it wasn't evil at all. So it kind of came from that. It was one of the lightning bolt um, ideas I had. I was uh, talking about it with my agent uh, during Christmas, uh, our annual kind of Christmas holiday uh, dinner about two, I guess maybe two years ago now. And, uh, and I told him about that and I was just like, and it's called Never After. And he was just like, Eureka. So <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Very congratulations cool. on it being on sale. Listeners, I hope you go check it out. I'm certainly very excited. It sounds like perfect, like cozy holiday reading to me. Yes, very much so. In a way, in the same way as Cricket in Times Square, I hope. <laughs> hey, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>